want to come to God's Word. Um, we are starting a new series, the Book of Romans, and it is full of some wonderful truths. Um, so uh, we hopefully uh, we're going to spend some time in that, probably uh, the next number of months at least, and uh, we'll see how uh, how that how we go with that. So uh, um, let's just pray for a moment first of all. Just commit our time. To God. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And Father, we do want to pray as we come to your word. Father, we want to pray that you would speak to our hearts now in the name of Jesus. Father, that you would take your word, that you'd plant it and root it deep within our heart, that it would change us and transform us. And we ask all of this. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, welcome to the book of Romans. And as as we open this book, there is a sense in which we walk into a courtroom in which you both sit as jury, but also as the accused. And this letter is probably the longest, the most elaborate, and actually the most systematic letter that Paul ever wrote. And he starts by describing your relationship with God. And the verdict, guilty. Because all humans have rebelled against God's holy law, that is except for one, except for Jesus Christ And he is our only solution. He took the punishment through his sacrificial death so that those who believe in him will receive forgiveness from sin and new life in the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul describes as the gospel of God. Our only defense. The letter to the Romans is is all about the gospel. It's it's what it is, it's it why we need it, what difference it's going to make for our lives. And the gospel dominates the very first verse of this book. And it just carries on all the way through it. Because this book is all about God who unveils his power and grace through the good news about Jesus. And this power, we've heard already in our worship, this power is available for everyone who believes. Martin Luther said that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. John Calvin wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden secrets of Scripture. And this book is essential for anyone who wants just to understand just the foundations of the Christian faith, things like sanctification, justification, the deity of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. But the big idea of this book is the righteousness of God. And this book takes us back to the very basis of our Christian faith. It forces us to look at God's standards by which you must measure everything else. And this book declares the character of God as both righteous and gracious And is the strongest, in fact, it is the only foundation that you can build your life of faith upon. It's said that John Wesley 
in his early years, was probably one of the most discouraged missionaries around. One evening, he went to a meeting in London, very unwillingly. He just simply didn't want to be there. But that evening, he encountered God in a way in which he had never encountered God before. He later wrote, he says, about 8.45, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And the message that he heard that evening was the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. In fact, only a few months before that, John Wesley wrote in one of his journals, he says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who would convert me? That evening, his question was answered, and the result was the greatest, the great Wesleyan revival that swept across England actually transformed our nation. The reason why we want to study this book is because I am expecting it to transform lives. It changed the life of John Wesley, Martin Luther. It can and it will change your life as well. And in fact, if there was one scripture that transformed or changed Martin Luther more than any other, it was probably Romans chapter 1 verse 17, which says that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. That phrase brought Luther out of mere religion into the joy of salvation by grace alone. And you and I can expect God's word to change our lives as well. It can revive our very own hearts, our home, our churches. It can, and if we allow this, this letter just to grip us, to grip our hearts in the way in which it gripped people down through the years. This is what we should be expecting as we open the pages of this letter. Because the same Holy Spirit who taught them teaches you and me. So let's begin. Let's have a closer look at what God's word has to say. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through, the, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back in there in a moment. And Paul begins this letter, as actually any other writer would in, in his day, he begins by giving his name. But of course, there are probably many more people called Paul in, in that day than, than just Paul himself. So he goes on to further identify who he is. 
First one, he says, he was a servant of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a slave. Now that's maybe random to us, why on earth we want to use that sort of term to describe us. But actually in loving devotion, Paul has enslaved himself to Christ. He chose to be his servant, to obey his will. And so should we. I wonder how is your devotion to Jesus? How's it been this week? You even stopped to think about it? Is it your greatest joy, your greatest delight, as it was for Paul? Are you willing to allow him to be your master, to be your Lord, that you would obey and follow him? But Paul goes on as well to say that he was an apostle, again in verse 1. And this simply means to be set apart. It is to be separated from other things. It's, It's to pursue only one thing. And the gospel is so great that Paul is willing to separate himself from anything else in order to live for it and to share it. Now, we may not be gifted apostles, but actually we have also been called to be set apart. It's actually very similar to to be a slave to Christ. It's a similar type of analogy. We need to have our ultimate devotion to him, to Jesus. Third thing Paul says, that he is the preacher of the gospel in verses 1 to 4. See, when he was a Jewish rabbi, he, set, he was separated as a Pharisee, and he, he followed the law and the traditions of the Jews. But now that he is set apart for Christ, he proclaims and he preaches the gospel to everyone, everyone he meets. Now, just to make it clear what I mean by gospel, gospel means good news. It is the message that Christ died for your sins, was buried, rose again, and actually is able to save all who put their trust in him. It's for you. It's for me. But it's the gospel of God. It originates in the very heart of God. This is not sort of man-made invention. It's not, not something that some man's come up with. This is orchestrated and it is the very heart of God revealed to you and to me. It's the gospel of Christ. It, it, it's because it is centered in Christ, our Savior. But actually Paul goes on to say, it's my gospel. See, it's all well and good having all the theory, but it's got to hit us here. It's got to change our hearts. This was personal to Paul. It needs to be personal to us. Now you'll have noticed, maybe you haven't, but maybe you will notice that in verse 2, this is not a new message. It's promised in the Old Testament. It actually begins in Genesis. It's woven all the way through the Old Testament. And this message of hope was clearly promised and preached by the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Isaiah. And even though they didn't fully understand it, they preached it. But then when Jesus comes, when Jesus is born, when Jesus died and rose again, in this man, Jesus Christ, the one who is God, in him, all the fulfillment of the gospel comes together in one person. He is the promised king who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is central to the gospel message, verse 3 and 4. And Paul identifies him as a man, as a Jew, but also as the son of God. He was born to a virgin into the family line of David, and he was given all the rights of David's throne. He died 
for the sins of this world. He was raised back from the dead. And Jesus' miraculous death for you and for me and his victorious resurrection is the good news of the gospel that Paul proclaims and actually we need to be proclaiming as well. And the big idea, if you like, is the gospel, this message, this good news, was and is for all nations, for everyone. This whole world needs to hear the good news that Jesus is the victorious king. Now bear in mind, Paul is writing to Rome, probably one of the greatest cities in, this wor- or in, in the world at that particular time. And this is really risky for Paul. In fact, Caesar's official title was Son of God. When, during his birth, he was des- it was described and hailed as good news. And he demanded absolute loyalty, absolute authority. But Paul knows exactly what he's doing, exactly what he's saying. Jesus is the true king, the, right, the, the world's rightful Lord. And it's vital that the Christians in Rome know this, but also live it out. And Paul simply wants people to obey him. To obey God. Sorry, let's get it right. Let's say it again. Paul simply wants people to obey God. That's pretty important. But an obedience that springs from faith. See, absolute obedience like this is not motivated by fear. In Caesar's day, people were motivated to obey Caesar because of fear. Literally, they were scared they would lose their life. They didn't do what he said. But the gospel is radically different. Our faith and our obedience to God doesn't come out of fear but it comes from a heart and a life that knows that you're accepted and righteous in God's eyes through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not about obeying God so that you will be accepted. Truth is, you're not good enough. The verdict, remember, at the very beginning, guilty. But nor is it about knowing that you're accepted through Christ, which of course you are by faith, but also then thinking that I then don't have to obey. It's about the obedience that comes from faith. So do you only try to obey God because you think you have to, to stay forgiven? Well, you got it wrong. It's grace alone. It's Christ alone. And do you carry on sinning because you know, well, you don't have to obey? Again, you've got it mixed up because grace is given to you absolutely freely. Yes, but it's not cheap. It costs the one and only Son of God his life. The gift of salvation is priceless. And the finished work on the cross paid for all of your sins. It means that through faith in Christ alone you receive the righteousness of God. So your salvation is not dependent on your efforts. It's by grace alone, by Christ alone. And this is such good news, but it's anything but cheap. So I wonder, are you taking... Jesus seriously this morning and how you live for him and how you obey him and how you love him. Listen, there are consequences to our sin. We're going to come into that next week as Paul deals with the second part of this chapter. But your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should be motivating you to obey. Love motivates obedience. And I, I worry about some of you sometimes. I do. Is our love motivating us to obey and to serve and to love God?
And like Paul, I get concerned. And it's interesting what Paul writes a little bit later, next in the chapter in verse 8, if you turn to it. Romans chapter 1 and verse 15. It says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers all the time. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel among you who are in Rome. Can we just break there for a moment? And Paul is concerned for these believers. Now this church is most likely made up of a network of churches across Rome, across Rome sort of house groups if you like, none of which of course has actually even been founded by Paul. And he is just as concerned for these churches as he was for the ones he's planted. In fact, even though he is unknown to many of these people, he wants to assure them that he is deeply concerned for their welfare. So he begins and he says that he is thankful for them, verse 8. The main thing that Paul is doing here is just being thankful that the maker of the heavens and earth has got a community here in Rome, right under the nose of Caesar's, whose first allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. In those days, you see, all roads would have led to Rome, so it's not a wonder that the testimony of this network of churches actually spreads abroad very, very quickly. But actually, before Paul gets on to the concerns for the church, and he has some, before he gets there, he first of all is thankful. It's a good place to start. To be thankful to God for his mercies. To be thankful for God for what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of, of the church, perhaps in our nation worldwide. But actually we can find many problems sometimes. But first of all, let's start by being thankful for what God does. The second thing he does, he prays for them, verses 9 to 10. And Paul is praying for these people that he has never met before. Many of them actually have no idea about Paul particularly, but yet Paul takes time to pray for them. And God heard and God answered his prayer. I'm fairly sure that it was because of these prayers and these concerns they had a really significant role in Paul actually ending up in Rome. However, as Paul wrote this letter, he had no idea how he'd end up there. In fact, I don't think he, for a moment he would thinking he'd be ending up both as a preacher but also as a prisoner. But we see the power of prayer, in fact, the power and the significance of prayer which transcends distance, it transcends relationships, and you can pray powerfully and effectively for people and for cities that you have never met before, people that you perhaps will never ever see. 
And as you pray, spiritual doors are opened and opportunity to, opportunity to develop beyond even our expectations or understanding. Third thing he does, he loves them. 11 and 12. He longs to see them. And Paul, this great missionary who I'm sure had many demands on his time, you see something of his pastoral heart coming out here. He cares for people, some of whom were very dear to Paul, people like Priscilla and Aquila who had risked their lives for him, Romans 16. Others who suffered along with Paul, but he also loves the believers that he did not know, that he never met. He's genuinely looking forward to a time where he can spend some quality time with them. Again, a question. How much do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? How much do you love one another? In fact, if you're maybe traveling even to another place or another country, how much do you love to spend time with God's people? There's something of a, a unique connection with believers when they come together. Do you long to spend time with one another, to love one another, to care for one another? The fourth thing that Paul is saying here, that he's eager to visit them, verse 15. And Paul wants to get to Rome so that he can minister to the believers there. It's not a holiday, it's not some sort of sightseeing tour. This is the earnest desire of a soul winner. And this letter is an introduction to, I guess, prepare them for his visit. He knows that there are going to be false teachers, probably already at work, who are actually trying to cause problems, even trying to poison the Christians against Paul. And Paul is eager to get to Rome to share the gospel of Christ without compromise and without addition. So Paul, this great apostle, in verse 12, writes... In fact, let me tell you what he doesn't write, first of all. What he doesn't say is, so that you may be encouraged by me. What Paul says in verse 12, says, rather, so that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other. This great apostle humbly acknowledges that he needs to learn and to be encouraged by one another. We need each other. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, we need to allow people's faith to encourage and to build up your faith. You don't have all the answers. Try to break it to you, but we don't. Not me, not you, not any of us. But actually, it works both ways because you must use your abilities to encourage other Christians. Speak words of encouragement. Build up one another. Be praying for one another. Also, make sure that you're reflecting, but also applying the gospel message to your life every day. Listen, that's where it needs to begin. You'd apply God's word and particularly the gospel into your life. Be thankful what he's done for you. Be thankful that you, your, your, your home is already prepared in heaven for you. Be thankful that your, your sins have been forgiven. And as you apply that to your life, we love God, but also we love and learn to love and serve one another as well. And then just a couple more verses because there's application to this. It's all well and good knowing that God has done something in our life, but actually there's an outworking of this Paul comes to in verse 16. He says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
And there are two ways in which we can approach this. In fact, there are two ways in which we can share the gospel. You can either do it eagerly, verse 15, or you can do it ashamed, verse 16. See, in our Western world, we're often ashamed of the gospel of Christ because, well, actually all we hear in our media or our newspapers or even just walk into work is that people are maybe mocking and sneering at the gospel. So what many Christians do, they decide, well, it's just easier if I keep my faith secret. In fact, that's exactly what our secular world would want us to do. It's certainly what the enemy, Satan, would want us to do. In Paul's day, they faced perhaps slightly different challenges to what we face. See, their world was dominated by Rome and a culture that was controlled by one city and by one man. And Caesar claimed to rule the world. God's gospel claims that Jesus did. So what are the Roman Christians going to do? Well, the easy option was just to practice their faith in secret so that actually it doesn't really offend anybody. But that is not an option, at least not for Paul anyway. Paul makes it very clear that there is no excuse for anyone to be ashamed of the gospel or of Jesus Christ. In another letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Listen, that includes Caesar. It includes our politicians. It includes Donald Trump. It includes North Korea. It includes you. It includes me. But this is challenging because many people find the gospel shameful and even offensive. And perhaps there are a number of, at least four reasons why that might be the case. Because, see, the gospel says that salvation is undeserved. And this offends moral people who think actually that their goodness means that they don't need to be saved. The gospel says that we are all sinners. This offends the popular belief that actually there's an innate goodness within mankind. The gospel says that only Jesus can save. And this offends those who think that all spiritual paths lead to the same place. The gospel says... That the road to glory is one of suffering and sacrifice. And this offends those who want to follow Jesus and hope it's going to be an easy and a comfortable road. So why, with all of that, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Even though clearly it can cause offense. He says in verse 16, it is the gospel of Christ. Any good Roman citizen knew that when a message was given by Caesar, you listened. You don't ask questions, you listen. But the message of the gospel comes with even greater authority. It comes from and it's about the very Son of God. In the opening sentences, Paul calls this message the gospel of God. So how could anybody be ashamed of a message from God that is centered on his Son, Jesus Christ? You shouldn't be, according to Paul. You shouldn't be. Secondly, we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Again, power was one of the things that Rome probably boasted about maybe more than anything else. The fear of Rome hovered over the entire empire. But with all of its power, it was not indestructible. And there are many problems there. This was a wicked and actually a very vulnerable city. No wonder Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he was bringing to Rome a message that had the power to change lives in any situation and in any culture. He'd seen it work in the wicked cities of Colossians and of Ephesus and he was confident it was going to work here in Rome. 
It had transformed his own life, and he knew it could transform the lives of others. The third reason why he's not ashamed is the result of the gospel is salvation. It is the power of God that brings salvation. This word salvation carried tremendous meaning in Paul's day. Its basic meaning was deliverance. It could refer to both personal and also national deliverance. And against Caesar, he was looked up to as the saviour. He was the deliverer. In fact, he had the power to save and to deliver people from death. Paul says, the gospel delivers sinners from the power and from the penalty of sin and death. Salvation is a major theme of this book, and of course rightly so, because it's the greatest need of the human race. Men and women need to be saved. They need Jesus. And there is no other way than through faith in Jesus Christ as proclaimed through the Gospels. Notice, this Gospel doesn't come with power. It is power. It is the power of God in verbal form and it is the power to change and transform and to give life to people. It does what no other power on this earth can do. It saves you. Fourth thing. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is for everyone who believes. This is not an exclusive message to either the Jews or to the Gentiles. It is for all people because everyone needs to be saved. And the gospel came to the Jews first through Jesus' earthly ministry and through the early apostles. But it was never exclusively for the Jews. It is for all people. It is faith in Jesus that saves sinners. And this power goes to work in anyone and everyone who believes. God does not ask people to behave in order to be saved. He says, believe in my son, Jesus. And Romans is very explicit. There is only one way to receive the gospel and it's the saving power that comes through faith. Now it can be easy to doubt this and to forget the power of the gospel. And my prayer as we go through this, this series and this, spend time in this book that we will really grasp how powerful this gospel really is. You believe it? It's got power to change lives. And we believe it because it's the gospel that reveals, verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. This word righteousness is used in one form or the other at least something like 60 times throughout this book. I haven't counted them, I've just been read that somewhere. As either righteous or just or justified. And this is a positional word. It means to be in right standing with someone. It means not to owe them anything. It means to be completely accepted by someone. In verse 17 it says that right standing before God can be received from God. Chapter 3, we'll go into this in a lot more detail and, 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 and how that's even possible. But this gospel, this truth is far more than just simply being forgiven. The gospel is a complete reversal of both the national tendencies of the human heart, but actually stands in, in contrast to all other world religions. All other world religions say that salvation comes from our own righteousness. So you'd have heard people say, I just need to try harder. Or if I was just good enough, perhaps then I could make God happy. That is not the gospel. 
The gospel says salvation is all about receiving a righteousness from God. The gospel reveals a righteousness that is by faith. And Paul here is referring to the Old Testament, to Habakkuk 2 verse 4, says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So in the Old Testament, we we saw how righteousness was by works, how day after day they would sacrifice after sacrifice, but the sinners very soon discovered that they could not obey God's law or or even come close to meeting his standards. Every day they came, day after day, trying to do these sacrifices over and over and over again. There is only one way that a sinner can become right before God. It is by faith. So welcome to the courtroom. You will need to be attentive. You need to be humble to allow the word of God and the spirit of God to speak and to change your life. And Paul calls all of us to stand before God and realize that we are all guilty. And then he explains just the marvelous way of salvation, justification by faith. He goes on to defend the grace of God in chapter 6, where he says it's just not, it's not a license just to carry on sinning. In chapter 9 to 11, he takes a slight detour to answer some questions about what about Israel. And then he concludes with his practical outworking of righteousness in the life of a believer and how we can truly be right with God, right with ourselves and with one another. But more than anything, you need to be thankful to God for this glorious, this wonderful gospel. And I hope as we read through this book, we get more and more excited about what the gospel is, what it does, and and you can become increasingly eager about living it out, applying it to your life, and sharing it with those people you meet. But actually, first of all, before we take it any further, we need to apply it to ourselves begins with a change of heart, begins with meeting a person, with meeting Jesus. Do you know him? Have you met him? It's a simple prayer of faith. You, you, as you turn from your sins, the Bible calls repentance. It's, it just means to turn away one way and go the other way. As you turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus. You invite him into your heart. He will come in and by his spirit, he will change you. Do you know him? If you don't, come and speak to me afterwards. Let's let's talk about it. Let's pray together. Let's make a right start. As we apply the gospel to our lives, this will change everything. Like Martin Luther, like John Wesley, like many of us in this room, you can meet with the risen Savior, your Lord, this morning. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, I pray, Lord God, that by your spirit that you would apply that to our hearts and to our lives. And Father, I thank you that the gospel not only is a moment when we come to faith in Christ, but is also the ongoing process in which we walk with you every single day. Lord, we need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, teach us to love you more. And out of that love, Lord, to obey you. 
in every area of our lives. And Father, we just commit ourselves to your care this morning. Thank you for your provision, Lord. Again, we want to pray, Lord, for, for um, those who are facing difficult challenges this week. Lord, for Steve. Lord, for others, for Rachel as she starts radiotherapy. Father, we want to just commit, Lord, those that we know into your hands, into your care, Lord, knowing that you're with us. Knowing, Lord God, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. So, Lord, we give you the glory and we give you the honor. And we praise your precious name. Amen. Amen.